All right, so tonight we are uh, Article 8, talking about the Scriptures. And uh, so probably not much of this will be new to most of you, but Refresher is, is always good. I have benefited from just reviewing these paragraphs and going back over these topics. And uh, so let me start by just reading uh, the paragraph uh, from the 1646 Confession of Faith. Uh, It says, The rule of this knowledge, faith, and obedience concerning the worship of God in which is contained the whole duty of man is not men's laws or unwritten traditions, but only the word of God contained, namely written, in the Holy Scriptures in which is plainly recorded whatsoever is needful for us to know, believe, and practice, which are the only rule of holiness and obedience for all saints at all times, in all places, to be observed. And, of course, they give lots of great scripture references there. And uh, so, obviously, this is clearly uh, a very important topic because uh, everything that we do Uh, as Christians, right, as a church and as Christians, is derived from the Scriptures and ultimately revolves around the Scriptures. Now, so that you don't think that maybe I'm contradicting something that I've said before, because I know I've said uh, many a times that the whole of the Christian life is about Christ and Him crucified, right? And I get that from 1 Corinthians uh, 2.2. Uh, where Paul says, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I mean, the crucifixion of Christ is at the very center of all of Christianity, right? Everything that we do revolves ultimately around Christ and him crucified. Without the crucifixion of Christ, then nothing else matters, right? If he's just a wise teacher like Um, Confucius or whatever. This is all pointless. Um, And so clearly Christ and Him crucified is at the center of everything that we do. But what can be known about Christ comes from Scripture. Right? Because we weren't there 2,000 years ago. And so all that can be known about Christ and Him crucified, if we're going to know Him um, on any uh, meaningful level, It's going to be through the Word of God. It's going to be through Scripture. And so Scripture is paramount um, for us. And so we are talking about... um, And so when we talk about Scripture, we're talking about um, special revelation. um, That is over and against general revelation. And those are two terms that maybe you've heard before. Um, Theologians use those a lot. Um, Basically, God reveals Himself... To humanity in one of two ways. The first and most common is what's called general revelation. And general revelation is essentially what we see in creation, what we see in the world around us. It is generally revealed to everyone. Um, even blind people can touch and texture and see, and at least with their hands, the world in which we live. And the Bible talks about that, right? We see that in places like Psalm 19. Um, You know, you probably can quote it. The heavens declare... 
the glory of God in the sky proclaims his handiwork from day to day, right? And so the heavens declare the glory of God. Or you can think of uh, Paul's statement in uh, Romans chapter 1, where he basically says that all of creation bears testimony to the existence of God. I mean, you look out at the world around you and the intricacies of the world in which we live, um, the complexity of the human body, um, the, the beauty of the solar system just screams intelligent designer, right? That this is not an accident. This can't possibly be an accident that there is some intelligent design behind all of this. Um, in fact, I mean, it's becoming so obvious as science progresses. You know, I watched a documentary, um, well, it's been a few years now, um, where the individual goes around, he actually interviews a scientist, and, you know, more and more secular scientists are even coming to realize that evolution cannot possibly be true. Now, they're not, now some of them are, but they're not all becoming deists. They're not becoming Christians. They're, they're, they're saying maybe, maybe, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they call it, um, um, oh, what's the word? Uh, um, there's a technical term for the idea that aliens planted us here. Um, what's that? Nothing. Right. So, you know, there's this idea that aliens planted us here. Of course, that doesn't really solve the problem, right? It just moves the question to another universe. Um, but they're recognizing that when we look at the complexity of the human body, now that we can see inside a cell and how it works and all these, this, this fine-tuned machinery at the, at the cellular level, they're saying this evolution just does, cannot account for this, right? This screams an intelligent designer of, 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 of some level, of, to some degree. And so maybe aliens put us here. Um, but at least they're acknowledging intelligent design. All of creation bears testimony to uh, the existence of God. So that is general revelation. But when we talk about special revelation, we're talking about this. We're talking about the fact that God specifically revealed himself to certain people, to a certain nation, in a very special way, in a very specific way, in a very intimate way. So there's general revelation and there's special revelation. General revelation is available to everyone, to the general public. You can think of it that way. But special revelation is only available to a special few. Uh, only a few select individuals throughout the history of the world um, are given um, um, uh, purview, are given access to the special revelation of God. So this, this paragraph that we're looking at here is obviously dealing with special um, revelation. And when we talk about special revelation, when we talk about Scripture, um, theologians like to categorize or they like to talk about Scripture, they like to talk about special revelation in four ways. We talk about the, the authority of Scripture. We talk about the clarity of Scripture. We talk about the necessity of Scripture. And we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, and so this paragraph actually touches on all four aspects of uh, the Word of God. And so we'll kind of walk through it then, you know, uh, clause by clause, sentence by sentence, and I'll, and I'll bring that out for you. Can you repeat those, though? Authority, clarity? Sure. Authority, clarity, necessity, 
and sufficiency. Thank you. Right? And, and all of those are important in understanding God's special revelation in terms of understanding the Word of God as He intended us for us, for us to, to understand it. And so the first clause that they offer here, it says, and it's kind of a long clause, it's, it's probably the first half of the paragraph, but they say the rule of this knowledge, faith, and obedience concerning the worship of God in which is contained the whole duty of man is, and then in parentheses they have not men's laws or unwritten traditions, but only the word of God contained. And then in brackets they have, namely, written in the Holy Scripture. So this first clause really addresses the issue of authority when we talk about Scripture. It's addressing the issue of authority. I think first it's worth noting, I like that they insert not men's laws or unwritten traditions, right? Um, obviously, just coming out of the Protestant uh, Reformation, they are, they are clearly uh, concerned about popes and bishops and traditions of men being elevated to the level of Scripture. And in fact, that is what the Roman Catholic Church did, and that is what they continue to do, right? They say that, uh, that the way in which we come to know God is through the teachings of the church and tradition, right? Both are held on the same level. And of course, the Protestant Reformation, um, one of their mottos was sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone, right? Not the traditions of the church or the traditions of men or whatever the case may be. Not, I want to be careful here, not that having traditions or following traditions is wrong in and of itself, right? We, we want to be careful that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul actually commends the church. Uh, chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And that word traditions in the Greek is, that's an accurate translation, right? He's not talking about the teachings. That's a different word. Uh, he's not talking about Holy Scripture. That's a different word. He's talking about the traditions. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what all those were. Paul doesn't go on to, I, I wish he would have said, and these are the traditions that I gave to you, right? But, but he commends them. I, I handed you certain traditions that the church practices, and I commend you that you are uh, continuing uh, to do those. Um, another is Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two. 2nd Thessalonians chapter two, uh, verse fifteen. Here, Paul actually commands it in verse fifteen. So then, brothers, stand firm, he says, and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Right? Hold to the traditions. Right? Traditions are good. We don't want to elevate those to the level of Scripture, um, but they are good to have. And, and we have certain traditions, right? Um, one is that uh, the practice of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. I mean, let's be honest, that's not commanded in Scripture. You're not going to find you must take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. So why do we do it? Because that seemed to be the practice of the New Testament church. 
We see that in Acts. We know from church history it was the practice of the vast majority of churches for the first several hundred years. I mean, that's why the Catholic Church continues to do that every Sunday. Remember, way back when, like around the year 500, right, the Catholic Church was the one true church. And Augustine was a Catholic, right? Tertullian was a Catholic. Justin Martyr was a Catholic, right? So they were the, the true church. They began to drift away uh, from about the year 1000 to 1500, over a 500-year period, they began to drift away. Um, but the church traditionally has taken the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning. And so that's, that's a main reason that we do it. We hold the traditions that we think the church practiced and has been handed down to us, and we try to stand in that tradition. Right? So tradition isn't always bad. It's good to have traditions and to hand them down, but we always need to be mindful of what is Scripture and what is a tradition um, and be careful that we don't blur uh, the two. Um, but they clearly state uh, in the confession that, quote, the rule of this knowledge, faith, obedience, the worship of God, the whole duty of man is only the word of God contained in the Holy Scriptures. Right? So that's pretty much everything, right? It's contained in the Holy Scriptures. So the Scriptures are the authoritative Word of God is what they're, was what they're arguing, right? It, this is where we get our authority from to do what we do in um, church and in the Christian life. And so where do, we, where do we get this from Scripture? How do we come to this understanding of the authority of Scripture? Well, you go back to the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, first of all, there's this recurring phrase that you see all over the place, thus saith the Lord, right? The prophet's... We're constantly using that phrase, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And remember, before the time of, uh, of King Saul and David, who was the king of Israel? God, right? God was their king. Even when he establishes a king, Saul and David, it's still understood that God ultimately is their king and that the king, the, the human king of Israel, uh, is, acts as a servant on behalf of the one true king, but prior to them having a human king, then when you see Moses saying, thus saith the Lord, right? It is the equivalent of saying, thus saith your king, right? And back in that day, when someone says, this is what the king has decreed, everybody understood that as this is law, right? This is to be obeyed. I'm not in a position to disagree or whatever the case may be. And even if I don't like it, I'm going to keep it to myself, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? Because the king has said. So that was the force behind the prophet saying that, thus saith the Lord. And they would have understood that. Old Testament often says that God spoke through the prophets. So there's the prophets who would say, thus saith the Lord. But then there is also text that make clear that God would speak through the prophets that he appointed in the Old Testament. Some examples that we don't have to look at, but if you want to write them down, uh, 1 Kings 14, 18. Another one would be 1 Kings 16, 12. And there's many others uh, where it says that they obeyed the prophet just as God had spoken to them. So God speaks to his people through the prophet. So this is all, you know, helping to establish that the Old Testament was 
the actual Word of God. It was the authoritative Word of God. The New Testament recognizes all Scripture as being God's Word. Um, if you're still in 2 Thessalonians, then just flip to the right a little bit to 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, correction, and training in righteousness. But that phrase, breathed out by God, um, those four words, breathed out by God, is actually just one Greek word. And uh, it's a compound Greek word that uh, Paul seemed to make up um, because theologians do that. Uh, and it, Because we don't find it anywhere else in the Bible. And we don't, we've not found it anywhere else in um, extra-biblical Greek literature either. And it's the Greek word theopneustos. And it comes from two Greek words. The first is theos, which is God, and pneustos, which is breath. Right. And so Paul is saying that all Scripture is the very breath of God. All Scripture is God breathing. What he's trying to communicate, and I think this is really important, you know, when someone is talking to you, especially if they're close, right, you can feel their breath, right? If they're whispering in your ear, you can feel their breath. When people talk, there is breath that comes out of their mouth. Paul wants us to understand that Scripture is not just, and I've said this before, a record of what God has spoken. Scripture is God speaking in the here and now. We open up the Bible and we read it. It is God speaking to us. Um, reminds me of a, a meme I saw not long ago. This just popped into my head, but it was kind of funny, but also true. Uh, where in one scene, someone says, um, you know, I wish uh, God would speak to me today like he did to prophets in the Old Testament. And then someone else says, well, then read your Bible. And then the other person says, no. I mean, I wish God would speak to me out loud like he did to people in the Old Testament. And the other person says, well, then read your Bible out loud. <laughs> right? Scripture is God speaking to us in the here and now. And that is the, uh, the point that Paul is trying to get across. It is the, it is the living word of God. Um, Hebrews 4.10, I believe that's where that is. Hebrews 4, uh, 12, I was close. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active. It is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? The word of God is living. It is God-breathed. Um, and so the New Testament recognizes, so when Paul says, all Scripture... What scripture is he thinking of? The New Testament is in the process of being written. So he's talking about the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is God-breathed. It is God-speaking. Um, when the author of Hebrews says the Word of God is living and active, he has in mind the Old Testament, right? The Word of God is living and active. Um, 2 Peter 1.19. Keep going to the right. 2 Peter 1.19 uh, to 20. 
Here's how Peter describes Scripture and how it came about. He says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, clearly referencing the Old Testament, comes from someone's own interpretation. Well, in light of what he is going to say at the end of Second Peter, he may have uh, the writings of Paul in mind when he writes this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke, listen to this, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. Now that phrase is important as well. When Peter talks about being carried along, there's different views of how men wrote. Um, Peter is not talking about, and the 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 historic evangelical Protestant position has been that we don't we're not talking about the a, a dictation process. That God doesn't didn't uh, give every word, you know, He didn't speak the words into the mind of, of the, the 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 prophets and the apostles, and they simply wrote word for word what God was speaking to them. We think that because if that were the case, then you would expect that the writing throughout the entire Bible and the New Testament would all be the same, um, but it's not. We see different writing styles. I mean, you look at John, for example, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, is the simplest writing. I mean, it's, it's probably written on the equivalent of like an 8th grade level. That's why when you take 1st uh, semester Greek, they always start you in John. Because if you can memorize 100 Greek vocabulary words, you can read the entire Gospel of John. Um, when you get into the writings of Paul, more difficult. Broader vocabulary, bigger words, more complex sentences. The book of Hebrews is the most difficult. Whoever the author is was extremely educated. Uh, lots of synonyms, lots of big words, very complex sentences, different writing styles. Now, there are times when dictation does take place. We see that in Revelation, for example, right? When the, uh, the angel uh, says to John, now to the church in Ephesus, write. He tells him, write this. To the church in, you know, uh, Thessalonica, right. And so then he writes, right? So we do see at moments there's a dictation, um, but, but by and large, the Holy Spirit presses, impresses upon the minds of the writers, the prophets, the apostles, uh, the message of God, and the Holy Spirit allows them to, to draw upon their own education, their own vocabulary, their own background in order to write what the Holy Spirit is moving them to write. Does that make sense? So that's when we talk, that's what we mean when we talk about divine inspiration, right? Not inspiration like Picasso was inspired to paint the Mona Lisa, not that kind of inspiration, but rather the Holy Spirit, as they wrote, they were using their own mind and their own education, but the Holy Spirit was superintending over everything that they wrote. So what they wrote is the actual word of God. It is the authoritative word of God. And of course, Jesus says that all of the Old Testament was about him. 
right? In Luke 24, 25 to 27, he's on the, the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to a few of the disciples, and uh, they don't really understand what just took place. And so he says to them in Luke 24, 25 to 27, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's, I've always found that interesting. You know, you should, have, you should have got this from the Old Testament. I mean, go read Isaiah 53. Um, go read Psalm 16. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures, all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Right? So everything in the Old Testament is ultimately about Christ. It all points forward uh, to Christ. Peter recognizes that the writings of Paul are scripture. Um, probably should have kept your thumb in 2 Peter. But at the very end of 2 Peter, he says this regarding the writings of Paul. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other or the rest of Scripture, right? Which then raises the question when Peter wrote that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that he have Paul's writings in mind. Because then he goes on to say, that Paul's writings are on the level of Scripture. So he recognizes, even as the New Testament is being produced, Peter is recognizing the writings of Paul as being Scripture, as being the authoritative Word of God. And we see that Paul recognizes Luke's writings as being the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18 <laughs> First Timothy 5.18, Paul writing to Tim. First Timothy 5.18. Um, so Paul says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now it's interesting that he says, The scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox, when it treads out the grain. He's quoting from Deuteronomy there, right? But then the second one, he says, and the laborer deserves his wages. That is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. Right, he is quoting from Luke. He's quoting, now he's quoting from the lips of Jesus, but specifically he is citing Luke chapter 10, verse 17. So Paul recognizes the writings of Luke then as being Scripture, as it says in the Scriptures. And he's putting Deuteronomy right up against Luke and saying this is Scripture. This is the authoritative 
word of God. And then, of course, Paul sees his own words as being the very word of God. Right? We looked at that in church a few weeks ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, right down toward the end of that chapter, verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So, Peter recognizes that Paul is writing authoritatively on behalf of God. Paul recognizes that in himself. Paul recognizes that Luke is writing uh, Holy Scripture. Jesus recognizes the entire Old Testament as being Holy Scripture. So the Bible testifies to itself that all of it, Old Testament, New Testament, is all the very Word of God. So it's important to note, um, I think it's important to note, it should be important to note, that Scripture does not become the Word of God, right? Scripture does not become the Word of God apart from anything outside of itself. Scripture is the Word of God. Scripture is the Word of God as it stands. In other words, um, I'm sort of referring to a view that was espoused by Karl Barth, um, who was a early 20th century neo-Orthodox, most of what Karl Barth wrote is, is good and is still valuable, um, but evangelicals distance themselves from his view on, on Scripture because Karl Barth would say that the words of Scripture become the words of God as we encounter them. The words of Scripture become the word of God as we encounter them. The problem that is, is that that view places the authority of Scripture upon human experience, right? So it's not the Word of God unless or until we encounter it for ourselves, but that's just not true. Scripture is the Word of God, whether people recognize it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they have any kind of encounter or experience with it or not. Scripture is God speaking, right? Um, and that, that doesn't uh, change. Thus, to disbelieve or to question God's word is to disbelieve or to question God himself. And I think that's important, right? When we read the Bible and we read things that strike us in a way that we never saw before, like, oh man, is that really in there? Um, to question it or to disregard it is literally to stand before the God of all creation and say, yeah, I'm not buying it. You know, I just, yeah, that's not for me. No, thanks. Um, what's that? No one. We just heard something recently. It's like, oh, yeah, that was, that was there. That was the culture there. No, this is now. So right. Yeah. Right. Right, and that is, that is typically the approach that liberals want to take when they try to find holes in Scripture, they try to find ways to justify their, their, their unbiblical behavior. Well, you know, that was back then. Culture has changed. Things are different. We've evolved, or whatever the case may be. Um, and uh, that simply is not the case when it comes to the Word of God. Um, so then the authors of the 1646 go on to say, in the, uh, the next phrase, uh, in which is plainly recorded, 
I like that they say it that way, in which is plainly recorded whatsoever is needful for us to know, believe and practice. So this, this speaks to the clarity of Scripture, right? The clarity of Scripture. Um, the Bible is not an enigma. It, it's not a book of riddles, right? That, that we have to like, you know, try to, you know, calculate the, 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 the equation for every, every letter and add it all together and come up with some mystery message that is there that no one else has ever seen before. I mean, the Bible is, is not that complicated and it's not that difficult to understand. Um, on one level, on one level, it's not that difficult to understand because the God of creation is a speaking God. He is a speaking God who desires to communicate with humanity. And he has, right? He has revealed himself to humanity in an understandable way. I mean, he really has, in a way that we can all understand to a certain degree. In fact, the Bible affirms this for itself in many places. I'll give you two examples of what I mean. Go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 7, for example, says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Excuse me, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Making what? A simple person can understand it. If they want to be wise, if a simple person wants to be wise, read the Bible, is what God is saying. Making wise the simple. Uh, look also at uh, Psalm 119, verse 30. Psalm 119, verse 30. Oh, I hate it when I do that. Okay, not verse 30. Not sure what verse I had in mind now. Um, but it was along the same lines. Um, um, that, 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 that Scripture is designed to make wise those who are simple, those who desire to become wise, those who desire uh, to learn. Um, scripture affirms this for uh, itself. And thus, the Bible expects us to communicate these truths. No matter who you are, the Bible expects us to communicate these truths because we see that in the great Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? Most of you are familiar with that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall teach them to your children, right? Read the Bible, read what it says, teach it to your children. So God has revealed himself in plain language in Scripture. Even Jesus seemed shocked by his, by, by his audience's misunderstanding of the Old Testament. 
right? We, in, in several places, and, and I, I went through and, and, and looked them up and wrote them all down if you want to write them down, but in places like Matthew 12, 3 to 5, Matthew 19, 4, Matthew 22, 31, uh, Mark 12, 10, verse 26, Luke 6, 3, Jesus uses this phrase on several occasions, have you not read? Have you not read? You know, you, you have the same Old Testament that I have, right? Have you not read? One of those is when they're asking him about divorce. You know, can a man divorce his wife for, for any reason? And he says in Matthew 19, have you not read? I mean, just read the Bible. It's there. It's in your language. You can go and read it for yourself. So now this does not mean that everyone can understand everything about God's word. Right? That's why I said on a certain level, there is much that we can understand about God's Word, but not everything. The deep truths of Scripture are hidden from um, unbelievers. Right? Um, so, for example, in uh, Luke 10.21, uh, Luke 10.21, Jesus says what? In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Well, that's interesting. You have hidden these things. There are certain things that God hides from the unbelieving mind and reveals to others. In Matthew sixteen seventeen, if you remember there, Jesus asked uh, the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say Elijah, some say Moses, you know, um, some say one of the prophets. And then he says to Peter, but who do you say that I am? Um, or he says to all of them, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are uh, the son of God, right? And, uh, and then Jesus responds by saying, blessed are you, uh, Peter, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, right? You didn't figure this out on your own, and no one else shared this with you. My Father has revealed this to you. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 2.14, there Scripture makes clear that the unbelieving mind by itself is incapable of understanding uh, the deep truths of Scripture. First uh, Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So when it comes to the deep truths of Scripture, when it comes to the deep truths of God, the unbelieving mind is going to hit a wall. There's, there's only so much that they can fully understand without the Holy Spirit enabling them to understand it, opening their eyes to the truths of God's Word. But all people can learn much about God. All people can learn much about what God requires of them because Scripture was written in their own language, in the common language. Right? The Old Testament is in Hebrew. And they read Hebrew. They spoke and they read Hebrew. The New Testament is all written in Koine Greek, right? And so they all, throughout the Roman Empire, everybody was able to read Greek. 
Today, it's written for us in English. You know, if you can read English, you can read the Bible, and the unbelieving mind can understand much of what they read. They can especially understand the Ten Commandments if they read them, like, oh, yeah, thou shalt not murder. Yeah, I get that, right? Thou shalt not steal. Yeah, I understand what that means, right? There's a lot that they can understand. If they read the opening part of Genesis, they're going to understand God created everything. He spoke everything into existence by the power of His Word. The Bible is not an enigma. God wrote it in plain language. So I like that they say that, in which is plainly recorded whatever is needful for us to know, believe, and practice. And then they, they end by saying, which are the only rule of holiness and obedience for all saints at all times, in all places to be observed. So now here they're talking about they're addressing the necessity and the sufficiency of Scripture. The necessity and the sufficiency of Scripture. Necessity in that it is, uh, it is necessary in that nothing can be known of God unless God reveals it to us, right? God is invisible. And, and, and unless He reveals Himself to us, nothing can be known of Him. And God does this through Scripture, right? God does this through the Holy Prophets. He does it through the Apostles. He reveals himself through his holy word. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 2 is a good uh, support reference for that. You know, in past days, God spoke to our fathers, but in this present day, he speaks to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It is necessary in order to know the way of salvation, right? We can't know how to be saved apart from God's word, right? So it's, it's necessary uh, for these things. It's necessary for us to know how to live the Christian life. Um, without the Word of God, we can't know how to live the Christian life, but it is also sufficient, right? So it's, it's necessary. There is the necessity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture. That is, God's Word is all that we need regarding spirituality, morality, ethics, and wisdom for all of life, right? Now, we're not going to learn everything that there is to know about the world. You're not going to learn how to do brain surgery from, from Scripture, right? The Bible is not intended to be a science book, but that's not to say that it can't be trusted where it does talk about science, right? Where it does make scientific assertion, these things are true. But everything that we need, it is certainly sufficient. It is certainly sufficient for everything that we need with regards to spirituality, morality, ethics, and wisdom for all of life. Even when we talk about practical areas of life like finance, right? Or parenting or whatever else, you know, work, for example. Um, two scripture references, and these will be the last two. Second Timothy 3, we'll go back to that one again. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For every good work. Another good one I'd like to go to is 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life 
and godliness, that is for living life in this world and for our sanctification, for preparing for the next world, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, through the knowledge of God. Right? So everything that you need to know for living life in this world, for your sanctification, for preparing for the next life, is found in Scripture. It's not found by anything outside of Scripture. We don't need to buy self-help books or listen to Dr. Phil or whatever else, wherever else people get their information from. Right? If you're struggling in, in, in your marriage, in your parenting, at work, with your finances, with just being a good neighbor, with being a good employee, with being a good boss, uh, with worshiping God. Everything we need to know is found right here. It's found right here. Um, now, that's not to say that there is no need to read anything outside of the Bible. Right? I mean, here we are going through the 1646 London Confession of Faith, right? Well, well why do that? Right? Some people might argue, you know, ah, why do you, what do you, I don't read books. I just read the Bible. I don't need anything else. But the Bible makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given certain gifts to the church. And it says that he's given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers as gifts. Right? If God gave pastors and teachers and one of the gifts... Uh, listed in Corinthians is the gift of teaching. If God gave teachers to the church, evidently he thinks the church needs teachers. And not everybody is a teacher because not everyone has the gift of teaching. And most Christians, of course, recognize that, well, yeah, I get that. You know, we go to church and there's a pastor. But there is no difference in the pastor preaching a sermon or a theologian giving a lecture and in taking that same lecture and putting it in writing and passing it to someone. Once he puts it in writing, does it somehow become less beneficial than when he orally spoke it? Well, no. Teaching can either be verbally or it can be in the form of writing. And God has gifted the church with incredible teachers in the past who fortunately put their teaching into writing, into books, such as Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it is still very beneficial to read those teachings and to learn from them. So books are good, right? Books are good, um, and we ought to read good Especially books. when they're centered on what the Scripture says. Right, exactly. I mean, not just good putting in their own ideas, yeah. but they're good if they're centered on what the Bible says. Absolutely. I mean, if you're reading the, the writings of, of people that we know are trustworthy— and, uh, and especially the dead theologians, we have the benefit of knowing, right, they're not going to produce anything new that's going to be wonky, right? <laughs> because we've got everything they've written. And, uh, you know, sometimes that's the trouble with living theologians or pastors. You can follow them, and then all of a sudden they go off the rails. And you're going, oh, my goodness, now I've got to get rid of all of their books, you know. Um, <laughs> but you're safe when you go with the dead theologians. And if they did say something that is wonky, well, you just you don't read that. Right, but, but you can read all the other stuff, um, and uh, reformed dead theologian. That's right. So God's word is all that is necessary and sufficient for the church and the whole of the Christian life. Hence, the Reformation motto: right, sola scriptura, sola scriptura. God's word is the highest and only authority for the local church and for each 
believer, not popes or bishops, not denominations or traditions or science or experience or reason, right? Logically, I think this is true. Well, if your logic does not jive with Scripture, then it's your logic that needs to change, not the Bible, right? Or my experience tells me that this is true. Well, if your experience goes against what the, God, the Word of God says, then your experience is wrong and needs to conform to Scripture regardless of what that experience may be. So I'm always reminded when I teach on this subject about Luther's quote, the ever-quotable Luther, right? Um, I love Luther. Al Mohler once said, the problem with Luther is that he never had an unarticulated thought. Um, Luther once said, a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a cardinal without it. That got him in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Yeah, well, <laughs> that sounds like something Luther would say, right? But but he he Luther was right, and all of the reformers believed this. A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above any pope or cardinal without it, right? Because this is the authority, right? This is God speaking. This is God's word. Um, and so hence the importance of, uh, of, of teaching it accurately. I was listening to a sermon by John Piper recently, um, and I'll wrap, wrap up with this. It just popped into my head. But he was talking about preaching, and he says, my primary job is to preach text. He says, that's my job, is to preach the text of Scripture. Not to preach John Piper's theology, he says, but to stick to the Word of God closely and faithfully, and he says, and your job is to hold me accountable. You know, if, I, if, I, if I'm deviating from it, then you need to come to me and say, you know, John, why are you preaching your own theology up there? We don't come here to hear John Piper's theology. We come here to pr- hear you preach the text of Scripture and to stay faithful to it, right? And that's what, right? And that's what, that's what faithful ministers and theologians and pastors are called uh, to do. Whether it's popular or not, we preach the Word of God because this is really the only place where any pastor gets his authority from is Scripture. It, the authority doesn't come from a constitution. It doesn't come from bylaws. It comes from this is what the Bible says. And if this is what the Bible says, then we are all obligated to obey it and to do what Scripture says. Um, yeah. So that's it. So that's our discussion on Article 8, Scripture. Um, any questions or comments? Well, that verse in Psalms you were looking for was 130. 130. Yeah. So I don't know where 19, I got. 119, I get I get punch happy with the numbers, I guess. 130. So what's it say? It says, the unfolding, this is New American Standard. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It gives understanding to the simple. Yes. Yeah. Or the no means no, like three yeah. no's. This no means yeah. three no's. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. You know, honestly, it, it doesn't lose much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I want to say that because, uh, you know, don't, don't ever feel like you can't really get 
um, as much out of scripture because you don't read Greek or Hebrew. Um, you know, we have some very faithful, accurate, excuse me, translations um, because these English translations um, were, were conducted by, you know, um, Christians who, you know, preserving the integrity of God's word was very important to them. So if you go with a, a really good translation, English translation, um, it's just honestly, it's just every once in a while, um, you know, it, it's helpful to know the Greek or the Hebrew. Every once in a while, there's a phrase or a word that jumps out at you um, that you wouldn't catch in the English. One is the one I pointed out, for example, um, from uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, all scripture is God-breathed, right? When you see that in the Greek, theopneustos, you go, oh, whoa, that's significant, right? Um, so there's, there's value in, in, there can be some value in knowing the Greek and the Hebrew, but for the most part, um, I think if you stick with a good translation like the ESV or the New American Standard or the New King James, those are the ones that I always recommend to people. I think those three translations are, are very accurate. Um, and I think you do well with, with those, yeah. I wanted to mention, I always remember seeing a sign when we lived in Pennsylvania as we were heading down the road, this big sign would say, don't just read the Bible, study it, mm -hmm. you know? And I always thought, that's true, because it's so easy to want to just yeah, read. I mean, right. I'm reading scripture. Yeah, like, yeah. Study it. Yeah, someone once said that if you, uh, if you, um, if you rake over the Bible, you'll end up with a very pretty pile of golden leaves. But if you dig deep into the Bible, you'll find gold. Yeah. And I, I think that's really true. I think, yeah. Um, yeah John Piper, in this sermon that I listened to recently, uh, again, he uh, was talking about that very thing. And he says, you can, he says, the joy comes from, you know, digging deep into knowing God. He says, because God is inexhaustible. And he says, and when you dig deep, he says, and you pull off layer after layer after layer after layer, he says, and you think you get to the bottom of it all, there is more. And it just keeps going. And, uh, and that's the joy of digging into God's word, you know. No, it is. No, it is. May I share one of my favorite quotes? Yes. Yes. It's A.W. Pink. He says, The Bible is no lazy man's book. Much of its treasure, like the valuable minerals stored in the bowels of the earth, only yieldeth themselves to the diligent seeker. That's right. Only yieldeth themselves to the diligent seeker. Yeah. So I encourage people to dig into God's Word. Um, and that's where the books can be helpful, too, because the books can help open up God's word to you in a way, you know, she's quoting A.W. Pink. My goodness, anything that you can read from Arthur Pink is just worth, you know, reading it with the Bible and looking at looking up the scripture verses. And that's, I just encourage people to do, that's where you really get the most out of books. I tell people all the time, when you're reading a good book by a theologian and they, they cite these scripture verses in parentheses, right? Don't just read over those like, oh yeah, those, okay, let me keep going, right? Stop. <laughs> And look those up, right? And see them for yourself. Wow, that's amazing, right? And sometimes you only get through two pages in a book, but if, if it's worth its weight in salt, then you're going to get a lot more if you're looking up those scripture verses as they, as they 
as they present them in the book. So use it as a study tool for the Bible and don't just read the book by itself. You know? So yeah. All right, why don't we close in a in a word of prayer?